the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Good Wednesday afternoon to you. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and questions about stuff going on in your life. We need you to call us, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. That's our main number. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Um, Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You will be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, let's give you a little bit of information, and then we'll get started with questions. Tonight, I'll be teaching uh, in Genesis chapter 48. I've got two more studies after tonight in the book of Genesis, and then we're going to be going to the prophecy of Daniel on Wednesday nights. Um, So three weeks from tonight, we'll be in... I might be on vacation, so it might be a little longer than that. But we'll be going to Daniel immediately following Genesis. Uh, And then, of course, tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me on the date day edition of the program. So you can prepare your questions for Paula. And by the way, I, I, I said something wrong the other day. Paula's message, I said it was going to be online at calvarysa.com. Uh, I'm being told it was a great message, but it's not on there yet. So uh, I've been promised that it will be um, um, posted online at calvarysa.com sometime tonight. So um, sorry for misleading. I went to listen to it just a little while ago and couldn't find it. So that's all. Okay, let's get some questions that have been sent in to us while we wait your phone calls. This is from Mary. Um, During communion, you always explain who should and should not take communion. After you explain about taking it in an unworthy manner and that it is for believers only, I get that part. I would like to know what you mean when you say, as an unbeliever, you declare your own guilt. What does that mean exactly? Um, Mary, when I do that, one of the things that I always tell people when we're here on, on Communion Sundays is it's a family celebration. It's only for believers. Uh, and then I explain that we don't want to exclude you. And uh, so I, I invite you to become the guest of honor at the Lord's table. And the way you do that is to give your heart to Jesus Christ. So when I tell somebody who is an unbeliever and I'm addressing them that they need to, I don't say d- declare their own guilt. They've got to they've got to admit that they're guilty. They've got to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. It's not like I'm a good person who occasionally messes up or I'm trying my best and it's just hard. But But we've got to acknowledge that we're sinners. Until you do that, you can't get saved. You know, you don't save uh, somebody who doesn't think they need to be saved. And and that's the whole point. 
as the Spirit of God convicts us of sin and of righteousness and judgment, we've got to cry out for help. And only sinners can do that. Even Mary, Jesus' mother, in her Magnificat, confessed that she was a sinner. She called Jesus her Savior. If she was perfect, as Catholics um, often believe, then she wouldn't need a Savior. But the truth is, she called him her Savior. And so, Mary, all I'm doing, I just want to be sure that, that any unbeliever here knows that you've got to be a part of the family. And the first step in, in, in coming to faith in Jesus Christ is repentance for sin. And if you don't think you're a sinner, then obviously you're, you're far away from the kingdom of God. So that's all I mean, Mary. Uh, they've got to confess their, their guilt. Lord, I'm a sinner. I do bad things. And I'm sorry. And then I say the answer is so beautiful because then you can say, Jesus, please forgive me. And because I don't want to mess up anymore, I ask you to come into my heart and I give you control of my life. And um, that's what it means to be born again. So Mary, that's all I mean. And I'm speaking just to those unbelievers. They need to confront their own guilt. You know, we live in a world where good is called evil and evil is called good. That's from Isaiah chapter 5. And there's just a lot of people who don't really think they're sin. Oh, that's not a sin. That's not a bad thing. I mean, everybody does that thing. And and in order to get right with God, and by the way, this applies to, to, to professing Christians as well who are living in rebellion against God. You know, I've, I've heard dozens, hundreds probably of times over the years that people who are having sex with somebody they're not married to is a sin. And they say, oh, that's not a sin. Everybody does it. God knows we love each other. That doesn't matter. So you have to confront your sin if you want to get right with God, either the first time or many times after that. Thank you for the question, Mary. I appreciate it very, very much. Miguel says, uh, Pastor Ron, must I forgive others to be forgiven by God? Um, you know, when Jesus said, unless you forgive others, you yourself will not be forgiven by God. I think what Jesus is saying, remember, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is raising the stakes. I think what we're told, not just by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, but, but in the epistles of, of uh, the apostles, I, I think we're being told that, that forgiving, being forgiving toward people is expected or assumed by believers. So, Miguel, here's the thing. If you refuse to somebody, if you refuse to forgive somebody, then I think the question that the Lord would ask you is, well, did what they do to you, was that worse than what you did to me? Or I forgave you, it cost you nothing. I I offered forgiveness and you accepted it. Why can't you offer forgiveness to somebody who's hurt you? So I think forgiveness in the Christian life is assumed by the Bible authors. So pretty much, yeah, you have to be willing to forgive everybody. If you're truly forgiven by God, you understand just how much you've been forgiven for and of. And if we want to be like Jesus, why wouldn't we extend forgiveness to others? Now, I don't want to be naive about this, Miguel, because I realize there's a whole lot of us who have trouble with forgiving people, especially people who betrayed us. I, I get this all the time with ex-husbands or ex-wives. I get this with um, uh, uh, children who've been betrayed by parents. Um, but how could I forgive after everything they did to me? The answer is you've got to get the focus off you. And exchange it for a focus on Jesus and remember that Jesus loves them. I've had people say to me, well, if I forgive them, they're going to think they got away with it. No, that's not your issue. Your issue is just being obedient to the Lord. And if he forgave you, Miguel, then I think he expects you to be willing to forgive. Now, nobody can be forgiven unless they want to be. But what you need to, to do, Miguel, is get to that place where you can offer forgiveness whether they take it or not. I shared my story on this program a couple of weeks ago uh, when one of the very first things that the Lord wanted me to do after I got saved was go ask a guy who stole my life 
I had to ask him to forgive me because I wanted him dead. I mean, I really wanted him dead. And and see, God wasn't concerned with him. God was concerned with me. And I had to get to that place. And, and I began praying for this man. At first through clenched teeth, but I began praying for this man. And I got to a place, Miguel, where I realized that I really wanted him in heaven. That's just Jesus taking his heart and placing it in your heart. So I think, let me add one word to your question. I think you need to be willing to forgive others. Because if you are unwilling to forgive, then I don't think you realize the extent to which you have been forgiven by God himself. Very important thing. We cannot be burdened by hate, by unforgiveness. We, we can't just pretend like God's word doesn't apply to us because this person hurt us so so badly. We have to be willing to forgive. And the reason Jesus is so insistent on that, as are the writers of the epistles, the reason is because you're never free as long as you're carrying that burden of unforgiveness. And God wants you to be free. He wants you to be free to receive His Spirit. He wants you to be free to receive gifts of the Spirit. He wants you to be free to be able to say yes to ministry callings that He has for your life. And unfortunately... Um, if we're bound by unforgiveness, Miguel, we're not free. It is for freedom you've been set free, Galatians 5.1 says. And forgiveness is a huge part, a huge part of that forgiveness. Here is a question, um, a related question. I am a 40-year-old woman who can't get over the pain of my teen years. I feel like things have been so unfair and I'm always carrying bitterness toward the people involved. Can you help me? Uh, Anonymous, what you need to do is make a decision. Now, um, you don't say in this question how long you've been saved, but um, um, through your teen years, which means that you've been carrying uh, this bitterness for more than 20 years. I mean, that's if you're talking about 19 so you've been carrying this bitterness for a very, very long time. You've been trapped in not being able to get over the pain of your, your teenage years. How long are you going to let that bother you? going to let it ruin you the rest of your life? When I just answered Miguel's, Miguel's question about forgiveness, that, that applies to you as well. How long are you going to be in bondage when God is sitting there with his arms open and he's saying, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is sorry for all the things that happened to you in your teen years. But remember that the most unfair thing that's ever happened was the perfect Son of God being beaten and crucified on a cross for your sins and mine. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for you And he died for me when I hated him. When I rebelled against him. And his cry from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, should be very personal to you, Anonymous. And so really what you you need to understand is that God wants you to let go of those things. It's a choice that you make. He wants you to let go of those things so you can be free to enjoy your relationship with him. As long as you're burdened by these things, the, the bitterness, um, Satan is having his way. And Jesus says, but I want to have my way in you and through you. So first and foremost, you've got to recognize that your and I don't want you to misunderstand this. This will strike a chord. I don't want it to be a negative one. As a believer, you're more guilty of sinning against God, holding on to all this, than the people who did mean things to you are guilty. You're more accountable. Too much is given, more is required. And because you know what Jesus has done for you, you've got to be willing to let go of it. I'm hoping, Anonymous, that you're mad, righteously angry, And the reason I say that is because I want you to be angry for all these years that have been ripped off. 
I mean, for more than 20 years now, instead of enjoying the fullness of his joy, you've been carrying bitterness. Imagine how that's compromised your witness. The people in your life that know you're a Christian, they don't see any joy. They don't see the fruit of the Spirit, love, peace, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness. Kindness, they don't see those things. And so the first thing for you to do is repent. Call sin, sin. And then ask God to help you with your heart toward those people. Ask him to pour out his heart into your heart. By the way, he's already done that. Romans 5.5 5 says, as a born-again Christian, that God has poured out his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit that he's given you. He doesn't want you to love them with your love. Your love is crummy. It's insufficient. He says, I've put my love in your heart. Let it come out for them. And then pray for them. And as I said to Miguel a moment ago, even if you have to pray through clenched teeth, make it a practice, a daily practice, sometimes, um, many times a day, as long as these bitter feelings come in. Pray for them over and over and over, and eventually the Holy Spirit will change your heart toward them. And I promise you this, Anonymous, there will be a day, and I always liken this to to Christian's journey and Pilgrim's progress, there'll be a day when the, the burden that's been getting bigger and bigger and bigger, it will just fall off, and you'll be so free, and there will be a joy that you haven't been able to, to experience in all of these years. It's time to forget the past. Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting that which is behind, I press on. And pressing on is following Jesus. Your fellowship has been cut off by this bitterness. You're saved. I'm not questioning your salvation. But you've been on your own all these years because this bitterness has kept you in that lonely place. The enemy has been pounding you. He's the real bully. So whatever people have done to you, ask God to show you how much he loves them. And then say, I want to be like you, Jesus. Help me to love them with your love. I think as a 40-year-old woman, you are responsible to represent Jesus. And until now, you've been misrepresenting him. I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585. Let's go to line one and talk with Jeff from San Antonio. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. How are you doing this afternoon? Jeff, I'm doing well. How about you? Doing great. Was gone for a couple weeks. Um, vacation for a week, finally. And, uh, oh, good. Then mandatory quarantine when I got back. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, but still, I, I took the time to just kind of relish that time off. And, uh, Good. So I uh, wanted to ask you, I uh, wanted to follow up on your sermon on Sunday and ask if you would talk a little bit uh, about, uh, well, 1 Corinthians 11, verses eight, uh, 17 and 18, uh, the divisions uh, that uh, Paul talks about there, and, and if, if you would use that word, contentiousness. And and, and uh, elaborate on that some more. I really appreciate that, Pastor. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. I will do it. It was good to see you, by the way. Um, a couple of things. You know, Paul, and, and anytime you talk about these verses in Corinthians, you cannot lose the context and understand that this was a church completely out of control. I mean, this was a church that was being uh, controlled by flesh. Um, um, so when Paul, in, in this context... He's saying, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. He's not talking about the same divisions that he was talking about in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. There he was saying that there were people taking sides. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. Others would say, I'm of Christ. And and he was talking about the silliness, the futility of divisions. It's not, I didn't die for you. I didn't do anything for you. Jesus did it all. 
And so he's talking about those petty divisions that happen in churches. Now, in in this particular case, he's talking about, uh, and, and because it's such a long um, passage of Scripture, um, Paul is talking about what he started addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 all the way through chapter 11. He's talking about putting the needs of others ahead of your own needs so that you can walk in the power of the Spirit and serve together in that one Spirit. So um, now there are divisions over communion. There are divisions over the gifts of the Spirit. We're going to actually start talking about that this Sunday at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio uh, as we as we begin uh, chapter 12. Uh, there were divisions about uh, the love feast that they had. So what they were, what Paul is saying is, look, you don't even know how to do communion together. You come together and everybody eats, but the rich people staying with the rich people and the poor people. Well, they're going home hungry because you're eating all the good food and you're drinking all the food. Some of you are even getting drunk. And and he's saying, no doubt that there have to be differences among you to show you which of you are have God's approval. And then he points a finger in their faces. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. In other words, you're eating for you. You're not eating for Jesus. If you're not eating for Jesus, you're not eating with Jesus. So here's what was going on. He is saying that the differences in your behavior demonstrate which one among you have God's approval. Those of you who are putting the needs of others ahead of your own needs, you get it then you're you're coming to the Lord's table. But the rest of you, now remember, Paul is answering questions that have been sent to him via mail. I almost said via email. Uh, they sent to him via mail, and, and he's answering the questions. There's so much dysfunction going on in the church at Corinth that Paul is simply saying, look, stop kidding yourself. Um, get together in the power of the Spirit, in the unity of the Spirit. And then you'll see which among you have God's approval. Clearly, those who are causing the division uh, and deepening the division, uh, they don't have God's approval. But it always gives an opportunity for those who are really and truly walking with Jesus, Jeff. It gives them the opportunity to uh, to demonstrate the, 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 the heart and the mind of Christ. So, um, for me, that was sort of an awkward study in the sense that um, on Communion Sunday when we're studying all these things. Um, you know, we want our focus on Jesus. But I, I did have the opportunity to talk about just um, the damage it's done when focus is off Jesus, especially as we come to the Lord's table. Jeff, it was good to see you. Thank you. And I'm glad you're back from vacation. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question that was called in anonymously to the studio producer. Um, he says, I want to make a decision, but he or she says, uh, I w- want to make a decision, but I'm scared I'm going to make the wrong decision. How do I get around that? Around that? Uh, now, you don't tell me if you're married or not. Uh, if you're married, the best thing to do is to call your husband or call your wife and bring them into the, the decision-making process. And remember that this isn't a process that says, okay, I want to know what you think, um, but, but, but it's a process that together you seek the will of God. A lot of times, as is the case, uh, at least implied in your question, um, God is asking us to do something, and, and we just can't see how it's going to happen. I can't imagine doing that. That just didn't seem possible. But remember, our responsibility is only to be obedient. And so the, the, the first thing to do is, is, if you're married, bring your partner in to the decision-making process and let God speak to the both of you. Secondly, if you're not married, um, open your Bible and read it. And as you're reading it, I promise you, if you're seeking the Lord on this, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than a double-edged sword. If you're really seeking the Lord's will on this this situation, he'll reveal his will to you, and then the rest is faith. I realize fear. I live my life in fear. I've told you that on this radio program many, many times. But you can't let fear keep you from being obedient. So you just say, Jesus, I'm afraid, but let's do this. And that's really what happens uh, as you build your faith. Jesus will be able to, to, to 
give you more and more responsibility. But you can't worry about making the wrong decision. Your Bible, my Bible says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It doesn't say Jesus began the work, but you have to be faithful. You have to be right. Uh, The Bible doesn't say that you are the author and finisher of your faith. It says that he is. And so, Jesus, you got me. If your heart's right, you don't have to be right because he'll redirect your steps. So open your Bible, listen for the Spirit of the Lord, and what you're going to experience is that, that moment when Jesus gives you direction. Yes, you will be afraid, but do it anyway. Paula always tells the ladies, uh, if you're scared, do it scared. And that's the best counsel I can give because that's how your faith is going to be built. Give God a chance to show you that he's got you. This should take all the pressure off you. Remember, you don't have to be right as long as your heart is right. If your heart is to please God, you just say, Thy will, not my will be done. You take that step of faith, and if God doesn't want you to take it, you'll know it, I promise you. Hope that helps. Thank you. We've got 30 minutes left in the Wednesday show, 340-9585. This is the word to stand on for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We just had somebody ask if I would comment on Rick Warren's retirement um, and um, I have no comment other than to say um, Rick is a brother in the Lord. He doesn't do anything the way I would do it. Um, um, we have some pretty serious differences um, theologically, but he is a man who has been faithful. Um, he is a man who um, for 40 years now, has been leading Saddleback Church, doing what he believes God wants him to do. Now, we might have issue with that, but but um, uh, he is brother in the Lord, and we're going to be in heaven uh, together for a very, very long time. So I think the, the, the proper response to this is to applaud his 40 years of faithful service. And, and um, um, if he thinks it's time, if the Lord's leading him in another direction, then I think that's great. Now, he's not going to stop preaching there immediately. Um, but what he told the church was now that the announcement has been made, um, he is th- th- there's a search committee for a new pastor. He's not on that search committee. Uh, but there's a search committee uh, that is beginning in earnest right now to fill that spot. So uh, he, he, Rick, is going to stay on at Saddleback Church until um, they find somebody. And when he finds somebody, Rick is going to take the position of Pastor Emeritus, which means um, basically if they want my advice, they can call me. But if they don't, and they probably won't, they don't need to call me. So uh, I think being up front the way he's been up front with his body is good. I think it's very healthy. Uh, and if he feels that, that he's done, that he's fulfilled the, the, the commitment that the Lord has given him, then we should applaud his faithful service in the Lord. Again, you don't have to agree with him, um, but we certainly don't have to vilify him. He has been a um, sort of a hot-button issue pastor from the very beginning. And uh, it seems like the people online don't like him. Um, Remember, you don't have to agree with people. Just trust the Lord is going to deal with this. Um, I think we should pray for him and celebrate him being faithful. You know, I'm getting, I'm I'm three years older than Rick Warren is. Uh, I know Rick a little bit, so I'm three years older than he is. And I got to tell you, these are questions that we who are aging really struggle with. When's the right time? How do we know it's the right time? And I've always said that that 
I will know it's the right time because the Lord will tell me. He hired me. He's the only one that can ask me to step down. And uh, I think we ought to give Rick the benefit of the doubt. If uh, he thinks this is the time to step down, then uh, I think that's uh, exactly what he ought to do. I was listening to uh, uh, an interview with uh, two people, Calvary Chapel pastors, a husband and wife, just this week. Um, they were talking about kind of what God's done in their lives. And and um, um, after 26 years of ministry, now remember here at Calvary Chapel, we're at 26 years. We just had our 26th birthday. After 26 years of ministry, um, God asked him to take a step in the unknown. No job, um, no real financial security. Um, but the, 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 the thrilling part about that interview is that... Uh, even though there was initial fear, they viewed it as a another adventure for God. And this guy, he said, you know what? At our age, to be able to ask to go on an adventure is a really great thing. And, of course, that was some years ago, four or five years ago. And what God has been able to do in them and through them in these last four or five years has been spectacular. I think every one of us, we need to be willing to let God move us at his timing and not our own. And if God has taken care of us for all these years and then he asks us to step out into the unknown, um, those people who are, who are Calvary Chapel pastors, they, they concluded, well, then he'll take care of us in this new phase of our life. And God is always faithful. So these are just kind of things. Now, please don't anybody misunderstand me. I'm not thinking about retiring. I tell people kind of half getting, that I'm still working on getting tired. So uh, we're, we're, I'm not thinking about stepping down. I'm not even thinking about slowing down at this point. Um, as long as I've got the energy and I've still got God's presence with me, then then this is what I'm going to do until he relieves me of that responsibility. We've made um, plans for my replacement, Pastor Ken, who's replaced me on this radio show when we're on vacation from time to time in the past. Uh, the church knows it. Everybody knows it. But uh, he's not in a hurry. I'm not in a hurry. And so we're we're just sort of comfortable where we are doing what God's asked us to do. But I applaud Rick Warren. Here is a question that was sent in by Laura. She says, Pastor on, do you think revival is going to happen? And if so, what needs to happen next? Laura, I can only hope and pray, and I do both, uh, that, that a revival is going to happen. Uh, the last revival in the world was um, centered here in the United States. It was the Jesus People Revival uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, revivals substantially change the world. They, they have a significant impact and and that one did. Um, you know, there was the Wales Revival, and there's been all kinds of revivals. And I'm talking about real revivals, not the, the, the contrived ones, the man-made ones. Um, when God's Spirit moves, history changes. Significant numbers of people change, and there is a new uh, emphasis. And, and revival always, always includes what I call a re-Bible, Laura, uh, for a revival to happen, there needs to be a re-Bible. We need to be interested again in what the Word says. Now, I say that because I'm not hopeful that the revival I'm hoping for is going to happen. I believe that we are in the last days, the last hours of the last days. I believe that even inside the professing Christian church, that we're seeing the great falling away, just the beginnings of the great falling away. That's when even Christians turn away from the Word of God or professing Christians and professing Christian churches. And all we have to do is look around and we see that's happening everywhere. We see people who are identifying as progressive Christians and others who are, well, we're, we're Christians, but we're interested in social justice issues and those kind of things. I think all of that being orchestrated by the enemy, and this isn't a conspiracy theory, this is Bible, all of that being orchestrated by the enemy is simply evidence that we're in this great falling away. 
And I, I, when that falling away is, is um, in full swing, then the rapture of the church is going to happen. Now, Lord, I hope and pray that I'm wrong. I hope and pray that I can be a part, that you can be a part of this one final move of God's Spirit before the Lord comes for his church. But I just don't see um, that as being as likely as um, just the next phase of, of God's prophetic plan occurring, and that, of course, is the rapture of the church. If revival is going to happen, you ask what needs to happen next, then we need to get back into a serious, serious relationship with our Bibles. We need to be serious about personal holiness. We need to take a stand for righteousness in a world that cares nothing for it. We need to be willing to be cast out of society. I mean, that's what happens. We get canceled if we stand up publicly and say the things that God tells us to say. And what I'm seeing, Laura, is... Christians, and I'm, I'm, I'm not being pejorative here, real Christians who would rather say nothing to avoid being canceled, to avoid being um, victimized by the people in this world. And uh, I don't think that bodes well for, uh, for another revival. Again, I hope and pray that I'm wrong. But remember, revival is what we need. And if we do that, the Spirit of God will take over. And and who knows, maybe, hopefully, there will be one more great move of God's Spirit before the end. That's what I'm praying for every day. I don't see any signs that that's true. But I am hopeful. And I want people to get saved. So, Laura, that's the next thing that's going to happen. It needs to be a, a, a turn back to the Word of God. We need to return to uh, being serious about personal holiness. Um, we need to think about others before we think about ourselves. Um, you be the judge. Look around you in this world that we live in. Does that seem like any of that is going on in this world? I get criticized sometimes, Laura. People say, well, you're not being very hopeful. Shouldn't you be more positive? Well, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And I'm also telling you I hope I'm wrong. But I think if we're going to be realistic about it, there's nothing wrong with saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, uh, because there will be one final revival in this world before Jesus returns in Revelation chapter 19 to destroy his enemies. That one last revival is going to happen in the Great Tribulation. It'll cost those who convert to Christianity, it'll cost them their lives. But at the same time, they will gain eternity. And they'll all tell us that it was worth it. If that's how I had to get to heaven, it's worth it. For you and for me, Laura, we're still here in these last days. We need to be serious about evangelism, telling people about Jesus. One-on-one. -on -one. Not crusades, not stadium events, although there's nothing wrong with those things. But I'm talking about our responsibility as believers to share the gospel of Jesus Christ um, with people wherever we find them. That's really putting the needs of others before our own needs. Thank you for the question. Be hopeful, be prayerful, but be ready. Because I believe that trumpet call is about to occur. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Tina. She says, Do you think Daniel's prophecies were written by just one man, or by many over a long period of time. Tina, you've been sort of fishing in um, a liberal school of theology, I think. I, I know this. I remember uh, my first assignment in Bible college. My first class was, was Daniel. By the way, we're going to start Daniel three weeks from tonight. Uh, if I'm not on vacation, I, I, I think I'm going to be on vacation three weeks from tonight. So when we get back from vacation uh, the week of July 4th, uh, that's when we'll we'll start the book of Daniel. Um, but my first uh, my first paper in Bible college was was um, um, to to answer this very question. Um, the the higher critics and by higher they think they're higher, but they're not, and they're just being critical. These are unbelievers, and they look at Daniel's prophecies, especially when you get to chapter nine and ten and eleven and especially twelve 
where the future of the world is told with such specificity. And 95% of all of those prophecies have come true exactly as Daniel prophesied them. And they'll just say, well, nobody could know the future like that. So, so these were written after those things came true, and they were written as an encouragement to Jews in the middle of being persecuted. That is blasphemy, Tina. So Daniel's prophecies were written by the prophet Daniel. Jesus himself affirms Daniel's ministry. And so if Jesus says Daniel wrote the book of Daniel, then I think we ought to agree with him, don't you? So be very careful fishing in those waters. I'm not opposed to reading um, critics and, and, and the like, but uh, not knowing theologically how grounded you are, Tina, just understand that you're wading in really, really dirty water. These are unbelievers who've written these things, and it doesn't matter if they got a PhD in religious studies or religious science. Um, uh, they're unbelievers. And, um, boy, to listen to unbelievers when it comes to explaining the Word of God is a real difficult problem. So, Tina... Uh, Daniel wrote it. Jesus said Daniel wrote it. And uh, I tend to agree with Jesus on these things. Good question. Thank you very much. Greg wants to know, Pastor Ron, why is believing in the Trinity essential for salvation? Greg, I said that in this program last week. Somebody asked the question. Um, the, The reason it is essential, you ask why, it's because you can't mess with who God is. We don't get to remake God in our own understanding. We don't get to make God in our image. God made us in his image. And the Bible declares that God is one. We know that true. But he's manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And over and over and over, we hear the Father referred to, Jesus referred to as God, the Holy Spirit referred to as God. Uh, in our Revelation study uh, last Friday, uh, the Father says he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus says the same thing. I am the Alpha and the Omega. We're told that Jesus is the the exact representation, the, the spitting image of God. Uh, in other words, I'm God. That's what Jesus keeps saying. So, Greg, if you say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the Trinity, well, then you don't believe in the God, the essential Godness that Jesus believed in. And so to deny that the Holy Spirit is God or that the Son is God or or that Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that's oneness teaching. Um, You're changing the character of God, and that's what cults do. And um, so it is an essential in that if you don't believe it, you don't have the right Jesus. You, you don't have a Jesus that's, that's powerful to save. It's that simple. If Jesus is created rather than creator, we're lost. If, as a oneness would believe, that Jesus is the Father and Jesus is the Holy Spirit and, of course, Jesus is Jesus, then you've changed the nature of God, who he is. And so you've got to believe in the right God. Jesus saves, but it can't be a Jesus of the Mormon faith or a Jesus of the, the Jehovah's Witness faith. It can't be a Muslim and say, well, we, we exalt Jesus. We, we, we call him a prophet. That's, that's a demotion. You have to believe who he is. And the same principle applies to both Father and the Holy Spirit. So believing in the Trinity is an essential doctrine for salvation. Now, Greg, one final thought on this. I realize that there are a lot of people who, um, especially at the beginning of their, their walk with Jesus, don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. It's hard to explain. Logically, it doesn't make sense to us. You know, we say one plus one plus one is three. So how can they be one? And I always with a smile on my face it will just change the method one plus one plus one is three but one times one times one is what? it's one so you can be a believer a real believer and not understand it 
But then as the Spirit of God leads you in truth, uh, He'll change you if you really belong to Him. So that's my answer. I think we still have time if anyone wants to call. 340-9585. Here's an anonymous question. Why do churches pressure people to give and serve so much? Shouldn't church be a restful place? Anonymous, a couple of things. You're painting with a very, very broad brush. Um, We're 26 years old here at Calvary Chapel. We've never asked anybody for a dime. We've never passed an offering plate or a bucket of chicken. Um, We just let people know if they want to give. We've got offering boxes in the back. Give with a cheerful heart or don't give at all. That's not pressure at all. Uh, You're right. There are a lot of churches that put a lot of pressure on people to give. Now, to be fair to them uh, in their excess, in their out-of-balance approach, um, running a church costs a lot of money. I mean, we don't have a huge building like a lot of churches do, and, and yet the expenses to do what we do are enormous. And um, a lot of churches feel like, well, it's our church, so we can ask them for money. Uh, while we don't do that, it's not a sin if they do. But it is sinful, I think, Anonymous, for um, churches to, to, to try to make people give from guilt. So um, there should never be pressure, but there should always be opportunity. And the churches, uh, simply put, the churches that keep pressuring people, keep asking for money, keep making false promises, they're afraid and they have no faith. So they take over from the Holy Spirit that which should be his. So that's why... Uh, it happens. It's it's a real problem, and it's an embarrassing problem for the church. Uh, but it's just one that people don't talk about very much. Regarding pressure to serve, uh, I've been accused of putting pressure on people to serve, and and I think the opposite is true. I tell them the truth. Uh, I've never said you need to serve, or why aren't you serving? We don't do that here. We don't even even when we're teaching a passage of scripture about serving, you know, we don't use that as an opportunity to pass out pledge cards. Okay, what ministry are you going to serve in? Um, What I tell them is that when you begin to serve your church body, that's when your walk with Jesus really begins to explode. You talk about an adventure from a call last hour or last half hour. Um, When you start serving others, then you're realizing what it means to put the needs of others ahead of yourself. When you stop coming to church to see what you can get or to see what your church will do for you and you begin to say, okay, Lord, how can I be a blessing to others? That's when the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon you and then through you. That's when you'll receive gifts of the Spirit. That's when your walk with Jesus really, really begins to flourish. And so I tell people, you need to be serving. I went so far as a couple of weeks ago to tell people that uh, nobody should come just for one service. We have three services here at Calvary Chapel on a Sunday, and we tell people one service should be spent in church being taught, another service should be uh, serving others, and then uh, I personally think uh, think that there's a prayer ministry. Uh, the, the third service, they ought to sit and be praying for the people in the, in the sanctuary on the third service. So uh, it's just, that's when you really get it. You understand what Jesus has done for you. So that's where you're going to find that church becomes a restful place. When you're using the gifts God has given you, when your life is bringing honor and glory to him, serve because you want to, because you were served by God, and your life gets rich and full. Give because we owe God everything, not 10%. We owe God everything. He's going to let you keep most of your money. But I think for the churches that put an undue emphasis or a, or a, 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 an exaggerated pressure on giving and serving, I think they bring great shame to the body of Christ. Yet I realize things cost a lot of money. I really do. Uh, and it is the responsibility of the people in the church to support the vision of their church. But I think they can do that not under compulsion. I think they can do that with joy in their heart, understanding that 
because God gave everything for them that everything they have belongs to God. So Anonymous, I hope that answers your question. Uh, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to serve at your church. That's really important. I've got two minutes. Let me see if I can do a two-minute question. Here's one from Angel. I think I can. Should pastors be more forceful in publicly condemning false teachers by name? Um, Anonymous, I don't know if we should or not. Uh, I am publicly forceful uh, condemning false doctrine. Just something that I've experienced over the years. Um, When I start naming names, there's a whole bunch of people that stop listening especially new and immature believers. They think, well, why is he attacking other believers? And I'm not really attacking other Christians at all. I'm just saying that this man or this woman is teaching false doctrine. Um, I've found that by explaining the doctrine that's false rather than naming the name, people listen, and the Holy Spirit then helps him recognize the false doctrine that's being taught. So I think that's the approach that I'm comfortable with. At the same time, Angel, I've never shied away. If somebody asks the question directly, and I get this a lot, about well, what do you think of this teacher or that teacher, not just on this radio program, I get that in person, and I'll tell them. Pastor Ron, I've just come from so-and-so church. If I know it's a bad church, then I'm going to let them know, and usually they'll see it on my face. I just want people to know the real Jesus and false teaching really is harmful. Thank you, Angel. Well, we're done for the day. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the day-to-day edition of the program. Lord willing, we'll see you then on AM 630 The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I need the word to stand on.